The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I think I've always been drawn to these year in review videos because it's a reminder of what are the events that grabbed our collective attention in a given year. Um, and it's always surprising to me how much happened in just the span of one year that I've already forgotten about. Uh, and I think this year is more significant because we're turning over not only a new year, but an entirely new decade. Uh, it's interesting that when it comes to Christmas, we have this popular cultural celebration of Christmas with Santa Claus and Christmas trees and gift giving. But as Christians, it, it's something very distinct and different, isn't it? Even very countercultural as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The same could be said of Easter. On the one hand, we have the popular holiday of Easter with the Easter bunny and coloring and hunting for Easter eggs. But as Christians, we celebrate Easter as the day that Jesus rose from the dead to give us the hope for eternal life. But when it comes to the new year, the church doesn't have much, it seems, to say about this holiday. I think the truth is for most Christians, uh, the New Year's Day celebration doesn't actually register as a holiday that has any connection with our faith. The truth is probably we just celebrate it like the world celebrates it. Maybe you make some New Year's resolutions, you do a party, you do a countdown, and celebrate when the clock finally ticks midnight. And in, by way of practice, I don't think the church really offers us much, does it? There may be a few churches that do a New Year's Eve service to bring in the New Year in worship, but the truth is I think that's getting very rare these days to find any churches that practice that tradition anymore. And I don't really get this. I don't understand why the church has just chosen to skip over New Year's as not having much religious significance to our faith calendar. Because it's, it's interesting, when you look at the Jewish calendar, you can make an argument that that was actually the most important part of their year. The Jewish New Year is known as Rosh Hashanah, and I've shared this with you before, right? It begins... And it's usually celebrated at the end of September or early October. It begins this 10-day period known as the High Holy Days for the Jews. And that will culminate in what is known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, which is the one prescribed fast for the entire nation of Israel in the entire religious calendar. It was the day in the Old Testament when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and offer two goats. One goat would be slaughtered to pay for the sins of the Israelites. And the other, as many of you know, was a scapegoat, which would be released into the wilderness to bear the sins of the nation. And so um, these 10 days in the Jewish calendar were considered really important as an opportunity to reflect back on everything that's happened in the past year. What has gone on in my life? Where am I in this journey? 
and then to look ahead and to spend that time, not only in contemplation and meditation, but also repentance, returning our hearts back to God. And in one way you could argue, you know, so if you look at that from a Jewish standpoint, it makes sense, but you could argue that from a Christian perspective, you know, that whole idea of the Day of Atonement and Yom Kippur, that's been fulfilled by Jesus by making out of his life the sacrifice that he paid for us once and for all, then in a way you could say all of that meaning has been fulfilled and that's why we celebrate Easter and Christmas is because that is our expression of those Jewish ideals. And I think there's a lot of truth to be said to that. But I also think that you could still make an argument to continue this Jewish tradition of contemplation and repentance and reflection. That, in other words, as we close out another year, I believe it can be God's invitation to us to just pause for a moment, to take a deep breath and reflect and say, what are the things that have happened in this past year? What are the things that God is saying to me? And what does that mean for me as I look into 2020 and starting another year? Well, as we start this new year, I want to begin as a church family with a brief, maybe four to five part series, I haven't decided exactly yet, on this topic of idolatry. Um, In the first couple messages, I want to unpack the nature of the sin of idolatry because it's interesting. If you look at idolatry in the Old Testament and then carry that forward into the New Testament, it's, it's actually kind of confusing because in the Old Testament, you could argue that the dominant sin is idolatry, repeated over and over again. And then when you get into the New Testament, it's as if the concept of idolatry has fallen off the spiritual map. You, you hear almost, almost no mention of the word idolatry in the New Testament. And so the question is, what happened? Is it because we no longer struggle with idolatry as people living in the New Covenant? after Jesus. And so I'm going to unpack that a little bit. And then in the remaining messages in the series, I want to sort of focus on what are some of the most powerful idols that exist in our day today that have a way of consuming our hearts and taking possession of us. For today's message, what I want to do is offer to you a charge that I hope will set a theme for this whole year. And I'm going to do it centered around, as you see in the the title of the message, is fixing our eyes on Jesus. And in the message today, I'm not going to directly unpack the sin of idolatry, but you can, I hope as we go into the series, you're going to be able to understand why I captured this New Year's charge to you under the series of idolatry, because many of the themes that we're going to unpack today are going to be revisited as we think about the nature of idolatry in our lives. And so I want to begin the message with this question to you. On what have you been fixing your eyes? On what have you been fixing your eyes these days? And I don't think any of us could answer honestly, nothing as far as I can tell. Because I would argue that it's in our nature to fix our gaze on something. The question is, What is that? Because we cannot help but focus our gaze on something. In other words, maybe what I'm asking is, what is consuming your attention these days? What has captured your heart on a regular daily basis? 
And I want to sort of offer to you maybe a few suggestions of what those things might be before we open up Scripture and look at what God is offering to us. I think one of the most worrisome trends is the fact that almost all of us in this generation have our gaze fixed on our phones and other screen devices way more than we probably are willing to admit or that we ought to. Uh, I've been actually taken aback by how many news reports and online articles and documentaries and even podcasts, uh, not just in the Christian side, but even the secular side, seem to be addressing this phenomenon. We are in uncharted territory here as a generation of the impact that these devices are having on how we relate to ourselves, our environment, to others. Um, I, I saw this statistic recently, and it really blew me away, but it said this, is that 80% of Americans will look at their phone within the first 15 minutes of waking up, okay? And some of you look just like, <laughs> I do that. Uh, I don't know why that astounded me, you know, that within the first 15 minutes of opening your eyes in the morning, your first instinct is to grab your phone. And that's how you begin your day. Would you be willing to admit if you do that? I don't know. You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. All right. We won't shame anyone here. Um, a while back, I was at this restaurant having breakfast when I saw this scene at this next table. So I took this picture with my phone. I don't know if you can tell what's going on in this picture. But it's of a child that could not be more than about 12 to 18 months old sitting in his high chair, and what he's doing is he's holding that little silver tray that the waiter or waitress puts the uh, check in, and he has put it up to his cheek thinking that it's a cell phone. At first, I thought this was so cute, (laughs) but the more I thought about it, the more disturbing it seemed to me that this is one of the first things that even infants are learning from their parents nowadays. And it's interesting that a lot of the alarms that are being sounded are directed toward our children and toward youth, particularly the teenage culture, and maybe rightly so, because it's the statistics are genuinely worrisome. The rates of anxiety and depression among that demographic have doubled since the iPhone was first released in 2007. Suicide rates have doubled as well in that population. But I show you this picture because I don't think we're also properly addressing the fact that as much as we as parents are worried about this trend, the truth is we are modeling this addiction to our children, aren't we? And the truth is, no two of us are using our phones in the same way, I'm sure. I mean, for some of you, it's almost 100% social media. One of the worst inventions to come along in the last few years is this feature on every phone known as the endless scroll. You know what I mean? It was devious, but your feed never has to end anymore. And so you just are endlessly on it. For others, it's texting. For others, it's constantly checking up on your favorite news sites and checking up the articles that you want to read. Uh, For others, it may just be playing games on your phone. But what the data is showing is that it doesn't really even matter what the content is. 
that you're doing on your phone. The end result is all the same. Sherry Turkle, who has done a lot of writing on this phenomenon, says this, Among family and friends, among colleagues and lovers, we turn to our phones instead of each other. We say to turn to our phones when, we, when we're bored. And we often find ourselves bored because we have become accustomed to a constant feed of connection, information, and entertainment. We are forever elsewhere. These days, we see that when people are alone at a stop sign or in the checkout line at the supermarket, they seem almost panicked and they reach for their phones. Afraid of being alone, we struggle to pay attention to ourselves. And what suffers is our ability to pay attention to each other. It's a very recent phenomenon to find yourself in a situation that you don't want to be in and then realize you don't have your phone on you. And then it is almost like a panic attack, isn't it? How am I going to bear through these next 10 minutes waiting in this line when I left my phone in the car? (laughs) Many of you may even be willing to lose your place in line to get your phone and come back in that line. I think what Turkle is saying is, is this, that this endless going to our phones has resulted in our inability to deal with the deeper restlessness that lies within our hearts. Rather than facing things that make us uncomfortable, like a social situation where we don't want to talk with anyone, or looking inwardly because in that silence and in that boredom, things are revealed about ourselves. What we have always as our companion is that phone that can distract us from that boredom, that anxiety, that depression. It was interesting, but she cites a study where what they asked the subjects of this experiment to do is to just do one thing, sit in an empty room in silence for 15 minutes. But what they told the subjects is this. We're going to connect this thing to you, and what you can do if you so choose is if you get bored or just get tired of this, you could administer an electric shock to yourself just to pass the time. And they asked these subjects, do you think you'd be willing to do that? And the people thought, you are insane. (laughs) Like, Why would I shock myself? Because I'm bored. Almost 100% of the subject categorically said they would not exercise that option. Within six minutes... It was amazing how many people were shocking themselves. (laughs) Isn't that insane? I would rather experience the pain of an electric shock than to be forced to sit in silence and stare into my soul. (laughs) In other words, if our only strategy is to distract ourselves, we don't learn how to confront or even to acknowledge our anxieties and pains, or even our boredom. Another thing that's been written about a lot in this whole past decade is the fact that these phones that we all carry seem to have resulted in an absolute breakdown of community. We don't know how to be fully present when we're with others because we always have our phones with us. It's one of the toxic traditions now, it seems, is when you go and have a meal with someone, you actually put your phone down on the table, right? And what Turkle pointed out is that the phone doesn't even have to be on. 
The moment that phone is put on the table, intimacy breaks down. Because what that's saying to the other person is, I'm here with you, but I'm also here with my phone. And if anyone else wants to get my attention and a notification pings on that phone, you can believe I'm going to look at it, even as we're talking over this lunch. And I'm seeing this phenomenon more and more as a pastor, as I meet with people. It's very, you know, unmotivating for me when I'm meeting with someone. And every time their phone pings, I see them looking down while we're trying to have a deep conversation about their spiritual life. Um, now, there's so much more that could be said about this, but this isn't a message on social media and modern technology, so I'm just going to end there. But I think the bottom line is this, is that I don't think we're being honest with the negative impact that this addiction to our phones or our tablets or other devices is having on us. As one pastor recently commented, which I thought was just, when I heard that line, I, I was just really, you know, shaken by it, but he says, He said, you can miss your entire life with just Netflix and your phone. (laughs) When I thought about that, that perfectly captures our generation. Your entire life can go in front of your face with just Netflix and your phone. I think for others, our gaze may be fixed on certain people. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. Or maybe it's that certain person that sleeps with you every night. <laughs> um, what I'm saying is, is this. Maybe you're just fixated on certain people in your life because of something they've done to you. They've hurt you. They've wronged you. And you just can't let it go. And so you find yourself just consumed with feelings of anger, or hurt, or resentment, or maybe even revenge. Or maybe your fixation revolves around a constant concern or a worry that you have for someone. You feel a burden that never lets up. And the weight of that responsibility that you feel toward that person or the fears that surround that responsibility are really at times crushing. You don't know what to do. In my counseling ministry as a pastor, I've come to realize how common it is for us to have unhealthy fixations on certain relationships in our life that are just eating us up from the inside and destroying us. They become like obsessions. Lastly, maybe your eyes are fixed on yourself, on yourself. You obsess over your failures and your mistakes. And it drives you into maybe many different types of directions. For some of us, it may be a sense of self-pity, self sense of discouragement or depression. It doesn't all have to be negative. Maybe, frankly, you look in the mirror and you're proud and you love yourself and you're self-consumed, you're self-obsessed. Everything is about you. But the bottom line, what I'm saying is, is that for you, where your eyes are always gazing at is this metaphorical mirror where all you are thinking about is yourself. Self-absorbed, self-obsessed. And I just want to ask you this again. 
What are you fixing your eyes on? What consumes you? What consumes your heart? In other words, when you have a spare moment and your mind drifts, where does it tend to go? Because what I want to say is this. Whatever you fixate on, whatever has captured your heart, I'm going to argue in this message, is also shaping your heart. It is transforming you in ways that you may not even realize. And the Bible tells us that instead of gazing on all these other things, we ought to fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 1 to 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. That word that in the NIV is translated as fixing our eyes is an interesting one. Because he, he could have used a much more generic term for looking. But instead he uses a specific word that has this connotation that your eyes were fixed on something else, but you very intentionally took your gaze off of that thing in order to focus on something else. Exclusively. With absolute commitment. That's the action that it's describing here. And so what the writer of Hebrews is seeming to say is this, is that you cannot, you can look at a lot of things, but you cannot with this kind of intentional gazing look at more than one thing. You just can't do it. And so whatever this exercise of looking at Jesus entails, it is to take your eyes off of these other things so that you can focus it on Jesus. I think that's why he uses this metaphor of a racer running a race is because he's trying to give us this picture of a runner that maybe sees a lot of distractions around but has a singular vision on the finish line. In other words, he is running with purpose, with meaning, with a sense of intentionality. And so it's with that spirit that the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Wherever your gaze and the sinfulness of your own heart just drifts toward, you must recognize that and take your eyes off of those things that are destroying you, hurting you, and turn it to Christ. Because it is only in gazing at him that you will truly find life, truly find the life that your soul needs. In a second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul talks about the transforming power of gazing on Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 to 18, look at what it says. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. 
It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, it's kind of a dense passage, and it can be maybe confusing to many of us. So let me see if I could unpack it a little bit. What Paul is doing is he's comparing the experience of the Christian church with the experience of the Old Testament Israelites, particularly looking at Exodus chapter 32 to 34. And in those chapters, what we find is the story where Moses ascends up into the mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet with God. And on that mountain, he engraves these Ten Commandments as God dictates them to him. And when he comes down from that mountain after spending 40 days and 40 nights fasting from all drink and food, he's radiating. Like, I'm not saying it metaphorically. I'm saying literally. He is radiating light out of his face. I don't think he really realizes it until everyone's like (laughs) turning away from him. And as dramatic as that must have been, what Paul is saying is, is this. The Christian experience of God's glory in Jesus Christ is more dramatic, more glorious. And in a way, you can stop and think for a moment and say, well, I don't get that. I mean, if my face shone like a 120-watt bulb, uh, I think that'd be pretty impressive. (laughs) And I think that'd be an awesome witness to tell people that Christ is in me. Um, How can you argue that the glory in me is greater than that glory that Moses experienced? And this is how Paul unpacks it. He says, Moses would cover his head so he would veil that glory. And if you go back and read Exodus 32 to 34, you understand what's going on there. It's because to the people, that was not a welcome sign. It was when they experienced the glory of God shining from Moses' face. It was not a desired or pleasant experience for them. Because actually what had happened was before those 40 days and 40 nights, Moses had already been on the top of Mount Sinai, and he had gotten the stone tablets. But these were tablets of the Ten Commandments, not written by Moses, but written by God. But while he was getting those commandments, the Israelites, if you remember, were down at the bottom of the mountain forging an idol, a golden calf, that they worshipped and said, this is the God that saved us from Egypt. You see, the Israelites had turned their back on God and sinned against him. And when they saw the glory of God shining from Moses' face, it was the source of judgment. It was the source of fear. They didn't want it. And so Moses was forced to cover his head so that they wouldn't have to look at it. And what Paul is saying here is, When we look at that story, it is a story of God giving laws to his people, commandments that they must obey, but with no power to obey them. And so when they saw the glory of God, it was a sign of judgment against them, a source of fear. 
And what Paul is saying when Jesus came, he did not come just to give us a set of rules of do's and don'ts. He came to bring us good news. He came to give us new hearts so that when we in this new covenant paid with his blood experience his glory, it is actually the source of genuine joy. And as Paul says, it is freedom. It is the power to live up to everything God desires. And so as I see the glory of God, I am filled with a sense of hope, of rejoicing, of celebration in the experiencing of that glory. And so Paul says, we don't cover our faces like Moses did. We revel in that revelation of God, in his glory. And not only that, but what Paul says is this. When you experience that glory that comes from Jesus, you experience a changed heart. That's what he's saying in verses 17 to 18. Paul talks about the transforming power in the glory of Jesus. But that also raises a question. How does that transformation happen? How do we experience it? And what Paul, in essence, is saying in these verses is we do it by fixing our eyes on Jesus. By contemplating his glory, we ourselves become transformed to become more and more like Christ ourselves. Let me see if I could illustrate it like this. Uh, C.S. Lewis, probably the greatest Christian apologist of the last century, um, he was an Oxford professor. And there in Oxford there was this really amazing group of men that got together, these professors. And they created this society known as the Inklings. And it was a literary society. They were all interested in writing fantasy novels and things like that. J.R.R. Tolkien was a member of that. And as you guys know, he famously wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, And they developed this unbelievably tight friendship. With one another. One of the men in this group, by the name of Charles Williams, um, died very unexpectedly and suddenly. And after he passed away, uh, Lewis reflected on the impact that his death had on the whole group. And in his book, The Four Loves, he contrasts and compares the different kind of loves we can experience in this life. And he says this, Almost every love we experience in life is exclusive. It's a jealous love. But friendship is unique of all loves because it's generous. It actually desires more and more people to be included in it. You don't want that for your marriage, right? But you want it in friendship. He says that's what's unique about friendship love is actually when just two people are friends, it's okay. But when three, four, five guys get together or women get together, there's something even more powerful about that, something beautiful about that. And he writes this, is that uh, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Meaning, when I am your friend, I can bring something out in you, but not everything. But there are things that other people can bring out in you that only they can, and I cannot. And so when Charles Williams died, one of the things that 
Lewis lamented is the fact that he will never see Tolkien laugh like he used to when Williams used to tell his jokes. Because no one else could bring that unique part of Tolkien out. Only Williams could do that. And so it was as if when their friend Charles died, a little piece of them died as well, of something that he would never bring out in this society of friendships. And so he adds this comment. Far from having more of Ronald, which is what he called Tolkien, having him, quote, to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Something has been lost when we lost a mutual friend. Now, the reason why I'm sharing this whole story is actually not to talk about friendships per se, but what it made me think about is this. It made me think about how each person in our life draws something out of us, don't they? And it's kind of interesting to think about that for a minute. Think about the different people in your life that matter most and ask yourself, what do they tend to trigger in me? What do they pull out of me through that relationship? And the truth is, for some of us, it's actually not very positive stuff. Maybe the truth is certain relationships represent for us bringing out the worst in us, a lot of heartache and pain or anger. But my hope, my sincere hope is you have some friendships in which these people draw out the best in you. There's something that attracts you to them. There's something in them that makes you want to hang out with them. Because when you are with that person, they make something in you come alive. Something awakens in you. And I know I have relationships like that in my life of people that I actually long to be with. That when I realize when I am with them, something in me comes alive and awakens. They are able to draw something out of me that nobody else can. And I think that's a bit of a picture of what Paul is describing here, is as we enter into friendship with Jesus and experience his presence in our life, there is this transforming power of that long gaze at Jesus that can change us to the very core of our being. Imagine a life fixing our eyes on Jesus, of thinking of him day and night. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. This is what Jesus is inviting to us, is set your gaze on me. Focus on me. I see when I do pastoral counseling, the poison in many of our souls when our gaze is fixed on something else other than Jesus. Relationships that are just toxic to you or just self-absorbed self-obsession where you cannot take your eyes off of yourself even for a minute. And these things are destroying us. And what the Bible is saying is there is only one 
focus of our attention that is life-giving, and that is Christ. Looking at him, what would it mean to see Christ everywhere in your life, loving you and caring for you and looking after you? I want to say this. Whatever you fix your eyes on will transform you for worse or for better. I think a great picture of that is in the Lord of the Rings series when you see Smeagol, the hobbit, my precious with that ring, right? He's just a normal hobbit at that point. But in years of obsessing over that ring, his precious, he becomes Gollum, this nasty-looking creature. And I wanted to show you a picture of it, but I was worried some of you might have your kids in service, and I didn't want them to have nightmares, so I'm not even showing you a picture of Gollum. But watch the movie if you want to be reminded of that experience. This is the invitation that I want to give you in 2020. Where are you fixing your eyes? Because I want to argue that for probably almost all of us in this room, we're probably fixating on all the wrong things. And the invitation to us is to maybe put down our phones, maybe to take our eyes off of our family and friends that are consuming us, maybe take our eyes off of ourselves and look to Christ and see how the vision of God who so loves me and is present with me and near to me can radically transform how I find meaning in everything else that I'm doing in my life. You know, I, as I was thinking and preparing this message, I thought about being here. You know, you guys just are here once a week for most of you, but I'm here almost every day. This is like home to me, all right? I spend more hours here than I do in my home pretty much, except waking hours, I should say. And my study is just there in the main door as you walk in. My office is right there in, the, in that door. And when I'm in that office, I'm like in work mode. I find myself so consumed with all of these things that most of them are problems I'm trying to solve in our church and putting out fires and trying to get things ready. And then what it is is like the bathroom is right there, and that's the bathroom I use. You know, it's like TMI right now, I know. But, you know, when I need to take a bathroom break, I go to the one that's right there. And what I've found happening since we moved here to Our Savior is that I will, often as I'm walking to the bathroom, look into the sanctuary that's empty and dark during the rest of the week. And every time I walk by it, what stirs in my heart is the sense of invitation by God to come in this place and spend a little time in silence with him and in prayer. And there are times that I accept that invitation. And after relieving myself, I'll come in here and sit in this front row and just spend some time in prayer thinking about Christ. But I'll also be honest. Even when I get those inklings, sometimes I suppress them. And I think I got way too much to do right now. And I just go back to my office and jump right back into the fray. And that's the constant tension of all of our lives, isn't it? Is this invitation by Christ to fix our eyes on him. And I want to tell you this. This should not be viewed as a luxury for any of us. Because I think many of us are not acknowledging how toxic the environment is around us 
and what it's doing to our soul and how much we need this invitation from God to take our eyes off of the things that are chipping away at our hearts and discouraging us and making us so depressed or anxious and fixing our gaze on Christ. In the next chapter, and I'll close with this and we'll pray, Paul says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verses 7 to 9 and 16 to 18, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I've been wrestling with a lot of this in my own heart of realizing that there are some addictions in my own heart, these gazes that I am fixated on that are not healthy for me. Just this last week, I started re-watching this HGTV series that I'd given up years ago. And just three episodes in, I, I was astounded by some of the thoughts in my mind of the kind of house I wanted and how much I was jealous of these rich people. And, all, and, and then I was reminded, oh yeah, I gave up HGTV because of that very reason. <laughs> and I had forgotten that. But when I saw all of that stirred up in me again, I, I turned it off and I said, no more of this. I think about all of these destructive places that the focus of my eyes goes to so easily. And in this coming year, in 2020, that's one of the things I am going to wrestle with and fight for. How can you possibly think that if our eyes are on all these things, these things are not shaping us? And turning us into mirror images of those things. I think all of us have to fight the fight for our soul. To fix our gaze on Christ. Who alone is our redeemer.